It's Tuesday, August 24th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, based loosely on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. Today we bring you a conversation with Rosalind Picard, a pioneer in the emerging field of effective computing, which seeks to make artificial intelligence succeed in recognizing human emotion. Indeed, her book, by that same title, Effective Computing, basically launched the field. Dr. Picard is a tenured professor at MIT, a scientist and engineer, and the founder of Affectiva Research Group at MIT. She's an active inventor with multiple patents. She also co-founded two companies, Affectiva and Empatica. Today, we're going to talk about her work and what it implies for the future of healthcare. Here we go. Rosalind, thank you very much for joining the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. My pleasure, John. Great to meet you. We always ask this question of there to here. How did you get from your childhood to the MIT Media Lab? What were the highlights? It's a good thing I haven't had to leave the childhood, right? <laughs> it's a lifelong learning journey. And mine started actually right here in Boston. I was adopted by a military couple who couldn't have their own children. We lived all over the United States. My father was a Navy pilot, so I was into adventure from an early age. My mom was a special needs teacher, so I got interested in how well she treated everybody equally. And I was free to learn and encouraged to learn. I went to undergrad at Georgia Tech in Atlanta and got interested in engineering there and really didn't learn about graduate school, doctorates, PhD research until later in my undergrad career. Got real interested in how computers work, how the brain works, came to MIT and AT&T Bell Labs to work on future computer chips, the kind that make up AI, very interested in AI, inspired by how to build something that worked as well as the human brain. And then through that, started working on some of the first tools to understand digital video, mathematical tools that could transform all of the bits into things people could understand. And while I was reading a book on the side over Christmas break one year, got interested in how perception and emotion connect up. I didn't want to work on emotion. I figured that would ruin my career, but (laughs) I was very interested in how the brain worked and was trying to understand perception. And then that led to quite a surprising journey that I suspect you're going to be asking me some more questions about. (laughs) As you studied the, you know, mechanisms, I guess, of perception, you recognize the importance of emotion for making artificial intelligence that would be smarter, I guess, and better at interacting with people. And you subsequently wrote a book, Effective Computing, which is now the name, actually, of a field of science. So tell us about effective computing and what that is and what it means. Thank you. Yes, as a junior faculty, not yet tenured at MIT, I took the risk of inviting Jerry Wiesner out to lunch one day. He was the former science advisor to Kennedy, former president of MIT. He was listed as the biggest name on a grant I had that I was really doing all the work on, so I thought I should meet him. And I asked him over lunch, Dr. Wiesner, what's the most important thing junior faculty should do at MIT? And he said, the most important thing you should do is take risks. And that was exactly what I needed here at that moment, because I had just been reading about how the human brain works and how emotion was playing a pivotal role inside our brains at the moments that we were not only perceiving 
you know, visual information or auditory information, but making intelligent decisions, which to me seemed completely backwards, right? I thought emotion was what we had when we were being unintelligent. And the more I learned about it, the more I was learning, holy cow, this is what we're completely missing in AI. And it's what really helps people deal with complex, unpredictable information and behave and act intelligently and rationally. So far from making us more irrational, although it can do that, when emotion is in its proper place, it helps us be more rational. So I realized AI needed to learn about this and being a woman in science trying to be taken seriously. That was the last thing I wanted to work on. As I amassed lots of information about it, I wrote a thought piece on it and thought I could get a bunch of guys to work on it. (laughs) They wouldn't touch it. Actually, a pivotal bike ride I had with Peter Hart, who was one of the founding parents of pattern recognition, which is what machine learning is today, the statistical pattern recognition. He also strongly encouraged me to, you know, drop all the other stuff I was doing and pursue this emotion research. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. I was never so nervous with such sweaty palms as when I gave my first talk on this to a group he invited me to speak to out in Palo Alto. And I thought with Jerry's encouragement and being in the media lab where Nicholas Negroponte, our founder, said, we like things that are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So I tried to publish a paper on it. I took the courage of putting a paper out there. It got roundly rejected. Worst reviews I've seen in my life said it read like a flight magazine article. (laughs) I thought, you know, the kiss of death for an engineer trying to be taken seriously at MIT. And then I realized I was in the school of architecture. The media lab is kind of wacky. We're growing up with physicists and engineers and artists working in this school of architecture where they write books. So, you know, while I was struggling to get a peer-reviewed paper published on it, I could write a book on it. So I wrote a book on it. MIT Press published it and several people really liked it. And it's stayed in print. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) not only stayed in print, encouraged a lot of people to take it very seriously. And they said that it put emotions into a category that people could treat as respectable and serious. I tried to limit the amount of equations in there. I was told like each equation you add reduces the number of sales by at least half. I think it's actually probably by like a factor of 100. So I kept it down (laughs) to one equation, which is toward the end. You can just read the first half of the book. And the idea was to really help people understand why we need to think about giving computers the skills of emotional intelligence. Not all computers, maybe not the microprocessor in your toaster, but computers that interact with people get treated by people in a natural and social way to a large degree, not perfectly, but to a large degree. And so when it keeps doing the same thing over and over, that really annoys us and we scowl at it and we curse at it and we shake our fist at it and it keeps doing the same thing, then we hate it right? And all of that emotional intelligence is something you really want to understand if you're trying to build an intelligent human-computer interaction. So I decided to lay out a plan for how to handle that. And now it's a field. It has its own respectable journals and conferences and communities that work on it. And it's a lot easier to get peer-reviewed papers published (laughs) in the field (laughs) today. You have to do great science. There's as high a bar as ever. But now there's actually people who won't just reject a paper for having the word emotion inside it. What is the data that informs effective computing? Yeah, people would ask, like, what data do you measure to understand people's emotion? It's not like I can stick an audio jack in your belly button or part of your ear or your brain and read out what you're feeling. And 
Your true internal feelings remain private. Computers don't read them. However, we can capture with a camera not only what facial expressions you choose to show or don't choose to show, right? If suddenly somebody's face is going blank in a negotiating session, that may actually mean that they're quite happy and they're suppressing it. Right. We know that the face is under your control a lot of the time. So we know that a smile doesn't mean you're happy. In fact, a smile can also appear when you're quite frustrated, as we've seen in 90% of users of computers in our studies. But it's one piece of information we can read. We can also read changes in your voice, the pitch, the energy, the confidence, stress. We can also read physiological data. We can read your gestures, your posture, your muscle tension, and pretty much any adverb. You know, if you watch an artist picking up a glass of water when they're thoughtful and contemplative versus when they're angry versus when they're happy, you will see that the swoop of their gesture, their grip is different. And in any environment where somebody's comfortable sharing that information, you know, how tightly they're gripping the steering wheel, how hard they're squeezing the old kind of mice we used to have that people would squeeze when one lawyer who got angry all the time destroyed like three mice. (laughs) (laughs) And you, you just find people take out their emotions in their bodies in different ways. And we can start to be intelligent about how we understand those ways. So you have that data and the computer understands it, AI understands it, how? Yeah, and let me challenge a little bit too. We say a lot that AI understands things or thinks things or learns things. It's not conscious. It doesn't understand anything. It's taking the information whether it's visual bits, auditory bits, pressure bits from muscle tension, it's digitizing them and it's doing really complex information processing, which was one of the names I believe Herb Simon proposed for AI back when John McCarthy proposed AI and the community said, oh, we kind of like AI better than complex information processing. Let's call it AI. That's more inspiring. But there's no consciousness. There's none of those experiential words that we keep applying to it. Right. Sorry, I know it makes for better movies, but that's not what's going on inside. So it's not really understanding anything. It's just taking all this information. We're teaching it what to do with it, showing it desired outputs for given complex combinations of inputs. And we are helping it build mathematical functions that with some imperfect reliability, give us the desired outputs when it sees these inputs. Obviously, this capability would be enormously valuable to consumer product companies and media companies. In theory, at least, they can tell what messaging is working, what isn't, how to adjust the messaging, etc. Tell us about that. Has this been applied by advertising agencies and media companies? It has been applied across something like 25% of the Fortune 500 now in different kinds of uses. An education company might play educational videos and see where people's eyelids get heavy (laughs) (laughs) or where they laugh, right? If you crack a joke and nobody laughs around the joke, but then like five minutes later, there's some other part of the movie you didn't intend to be funny and they're all bursting out laughing there. You kind of want to know that, right? Right. You might want to go back and edit it (laughs) to get the response that you wanted. So pretty much everybody who produces video content has been interested, especially if it's expensive video content, right? If it's going in a Super Bowl ad or if it's international for educational purposes. So it's really valuable when you can't see live your customers' reactions. 
if they're fully informed and they consent to show you their feedback to collect that and show them the respect of responding to it with how you edit your video. So yes, it's being used in media applications like that. The face reading is. There's also vocal affect reading that's used, for example, in call centers to help people hear if a caller is stressed or upset and maybe escalate them to somebody who is very good at dealing with that and not give them all to the poor soul whose birthday is today and they just, their first day on the job and they don't need to have five of those in a row, they might quit. So these are things that an intelligent person in the loop would do. And now that we have technology in the loop, can we help it do some of the thoughtful, considerate things that a person would do if they were there? So yes, it's out there being used in a lot of places where there is a computer-to-human communication happening. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. A big use case for this technology is in neurological health. Yes. I have a disease, voltage-gated potassium channel antibody encephalitis, an autoimmune disease that led to my having a series of seizures over a number of days, actually. I was particularly interested to read about the use case of epilepsy, but also depression. Can you walk us through that part of your science? Yes. And so sorry you've had to deal with repeated seizures. Epilepsy is a terrible disease. And having a series of seizures on top of any disease is a miserable thing to have to go through. And it needs a lot more attention. So thank you for talking about it and bringing it up. So if your audience thinks they don't know anybody with epilepsy, I challenge them to ask their friends and family members. I bet they all know somebody with epilepsy who maybe hasn't felt comfortable bringing it up yet. It's very common. One in 26 people in America will be diagnosed with epilepsy at some point. Is that right? Yeah. It's vastly more common than people realize. I had no idea. Yeah. It's also taking more lives in the U.S. every year than sudden infant death syndrome and other things that everybody's heard of. Actually, just a subset of epilepsy deaths, SUDEP, sudden unexpected death from epilepsy, is taking more lives than SIDS. So it should be talked about much more. In two-thirds of cases, it's treatable and probably more than 60% of the SUDEPs, they are believed to be preventable. One of the key regions of the brain, the home of emotion, memory, and attention, especially fear and anxiety, lurk in our two amygdala on both sides of the brain. We learned that when you go in, you know, just to somebody who's willing to have a hole drilled in their head, a craniotomy, go in and stick probes in there and directly stimulate these amygdala, it can make you stop breathing, like, (gasps) just like fear. The Weird thing is you don't restart breathing, even though you're fully capable of restarting breathing. Hmm. It's also been observed that not only, you know, doctors stimulating it with an electrode while your head is open, but also a seizure spreading to it can cause you to stop breathing. And only when somebody says, John, John, are you okay? Shakes you, flips you over. Do you (gasps) inhale and take a breath and start breathing? So we learned to our total surprise, that one of the wearables we had built to monitor stress in non-speaking children, children on the autism spectrum and adults had told us, you know, 
they have these meltdowns. They seem to come from nowhere. Could you build a wearable that alerts us to when the meltdown's coming? So we were working on that when one of the children had a seizure and we realized that the data we were collecting on their wrist was going up with this gigantic signal that turns out to relate to a key signal in the brain related to, we think, this suppression. And when we started making these connections, we now wound up building a wearable that monitors for these most dangerous kinds of seizures that are most associated with this kind of apnea after the seizure. It's called a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. It's the prototypical seizure people think of when they think of a seizure, although there are lots of other kinds of seizures. Um, But it's the kind with the convulsions where you lose consciousness. And in most cases, you're fine afterwards. You're just exhausted and it takes a while to recover. Mm -hmm. But we know there can be injuries, hitting your head, drowning accidents, and this kind of apnea that can set in in the moments after you think the seizure's over and the person's fine, but you've got to stay with them and watch them because that is actually the time that's most associated with the potential for stopping breathing. And when we say wearable, what are we wearing? Well, now thanks to Empatica, which is, full disclosure, has been out from my lab at MIT, and it's E-M-P-A-T-I-C-A, the Italian word for empathetic. Mm-hmm. Empatica has the currently the only FDA-cleared smartwatch for monitoring seizures. It is measuring not only the physical activity of the convulsion, but also changes in electrical activity on the surface of the skin that are related to this neurological activity deep in the brain. Sounds a little crazy. Something deep in the brain is showing up on the wrist. Um, What it's actually doing is it's modulating the pseudomotor nerves, causing the sweat glands to be activated in a particular pattern that we pick up. That plus the physical activity, plus the temperature information. And and the newest device we built to Embrace Plus, also photoplethes myogram that picks up heart rate and heart rate variability, pulse rate and pulse rate variability, technically. That information plus AI machine learning running onboard in the Embrace device made by Empatica is FDA cleared to detect these generalized tonic-clonic seizures and then alert through your smartphone a caregiver that you designate. And if you feel comfortable sharing with that caregiver or a list of caregivers your GPS coordinates at that moment, that can help them get to you faster and hopefully you won't be alone when these terrible things happen. All right, we're going to take another quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the podcast. Where does your work take you next? What do the next, I don't know, five, 10 years look like for you? I am interested in how to take the incredible power of digital technology and wearables and personalized AI and enable people to use it for preventing disease, for keeping themselves healthy. The models these days are find somebody who's sick, figure out how to treat them, treat them with pills, treat them with AI, treat them with some other cool technological intervention. I want to go back and figure out back when they were well, (laughs) what was changing to make them sick? And can we intervene earlier? Can we prevent 80% of mental health problems? Can we prevent 80% of depression? Can we prevent 80% of Alzheimer's, especially neurological diseases? I'm really interested in the opportunity to prevent them. And we've actually just had a really cool recent success related to COVID, which 
kind of is very exciting for me. Years ago in the lab, when I was wearing one of our sensors and testing it overnight, I got up in the morning. I'm like, gosh, my sleep data looks kind of weird. Like that's not normal. And then as the hours went on, I got really sick that day. And I realized that my wearable data was showing me something different before I got sick. And I thought, is that just an artifact? Is it just me? And I tried to get some other data and it showed the same thing. And then I talked to some doctors at Duke and some other places. They got uh, US government funding, HHS, the army, DARPA. They did a proper study where they injected people's noses after making sure they were well. They injected them with rhinovirus and H1N1 swine flu, monitored them with daily PCR testing, you know, the nasal swabs we're doing now with COVID, the polymerase chain reaction, and testing if they were infectious. Also, did they have symptoms? Well, long story short, we learned that our wearable was picking up things that could tell that you were going to have a positive PCR the next day, even if you had no symptoms. So you could say, I feel fine, but your nasal swab the next day says, you are sick, you're shedding virus, you're contagious. I feel fine. But our wearable was, was showing the ability to predict that. So we were doing that with H1N1 and a rhinovirus when COVID hit. <laughs> In fact, we had just gotten funded to do an even bigger study with Columbia when COVID hit. That came to a screeching halt because the patients were allowed to come into the hospital unless they had COVID. Flu didn't count anymore. So thanks to some other sources of funding with the U.S. Army and FAST grants, we were able to put together tests for SARS-CoV-2. And now we have a verified device. Now it's medically certified in the European Union, still filing for FDA in the U.S. that can detect if you are going to test positive for SARS-CoV-2 tomorrow, even when you have no symptoms. Really? So this is super exciting also for influenza, right? Because now I think we have this new appreciation of I might be asymptomatic. I'm going to go visit my mom who's high risk. I want to give her a hug. But if I'm maybe harboring something, you know, I want to be really careful around her. So could I get an indication that I'm clear or I might be infectious without having to take, you know, a full viral infection test every single day? Right. So this is a way to just monitor with your wearable. Yep, you're high risk. Better take that test, wear a mask versus you're really low risk. You're probably fine. So you're going to see your mom, for instance, or hypothetically, you have the wearable on your wrist, right? Mm -hmm. Physically, you have it. In, I mean, now you have it, right? Yep. It's not something that's in the future. No, it's working now. It's been, the data was submitted to the European Union. They've approved it for forecasting high probability of a respiratory viral infection. So you see that, you know, tomorrow might not be such a good day to visit your mom. And so you don't, and that presumably spares your mother some some, some health condition. I, I think this is like the perfect way to get out of things that you don't want to go to, right? <laughs> well, it does still, like a lot of our AI algorithms, they support people and they can be used in good ways or abused by people, right? You could say, yeah. oh, mom, you know, my risk factor is too high. I can't come visit today <laughs> and get out of it. You could also have a high risk factor and still go into work today and make sure you breathe all over the person you can't stand. Right, right. right. And that would be horrible too, right? Yeah. So there 
you know, we still have to deal with the with our own human rights and wrongs. And AI is not going to fix that. AI is still made in our image by us to serve people's needs. It's not evolving on its own beyond the capabilities we give it. And it's up to us to still try to shape our society to be ethical and good. AI is not going to do that for us. Right. My most commonly used ethical example in affective computing. Years ago, with lie detection, you know, even with trained users of the polygraphers, they made it illegal to use that during a job interview. Now, while the government still uses it in certain cases with hopefully even better trained experts when they're making any decisions on this, a lot of this technology is going to have a bunch of edge cases where it's not going to make the right decision. You really do need experts considering many factors. So we in affective computing have to be a little bit humble about the ways these things can make errors and be very careful that they are usually augmenting human decision-making and not replacing it, especially for something important like somebody applying for a job. I would not trust the output you know, of just the automated system for deciding if a candidate was a good candidate or not. At the same time, if somebody like Disney is hiring and they have 10,000, 100,000 applicants for 100 positions and they want people who love to smile when they see somebody new and they give you a little online interaction and they measure and they t- hopefully tell you upfront, fully disclose, you know, do you want to participate? Do you want to be recorded? We're going to look for your smiles, you know, and they measure that. And that's one piece of information they use. Then that I, I don't have a problem with that use, with full informed communication about what's going on and people having the choice to participate or not. Because there are jobs where something like that really matters. Now, hopefully they're not using it to do racial discrimination, which should be illegal, or age discrimination, which should be illegal, right? right. There are other ways that AI information might be used that yeah, I would say should be regulated against. And one way I would say it should be regulated against is using the affective information to decide to hire or not in a strong way and absolutely using it without informing people, fully informing them. You know, I think that is wrong too. People should have uh, full knowledge of when this is being used. I think that's where we'll leave it. Thank you so much for doing this, Rosalind. It's been terrific. And I think the book costs $65, by the way, at Amazon. Oh, good grief. That's crazy. The Chinese have a free PDF going around online. The PDF is much, uh, much less expensive. So I urge our listeners to get Rosalind Picard's book. It's called Effective Computing, and it's a brilliant piece of work. I've only read the intro. I look forward to reading the whole thing. Rosalind, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, John. It's my pleasure, and what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for your show. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Lippy. And our recording engineer was and is the great Billy Gardella. I'll be back tomorrow with Tim Higgins, author of a great book about Tesla. <laughs>